You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Lord. Quite a start, isn't it? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It doesn't stop there. (laughs) Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What a passage. I think it's every preacher's dream to preach out of this passage, or maybe not. There's uh, some big shoes to fill. Uh, but let, let's just pray. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for this absolutely amazing passage that we have in front of us today, Father. Wow. Maybe we should just read it a hundred times and then just meditate on it, Lord. But Lord, I ask that for everyone that's here this morning, Lord God, that you would open our hearts. Help us open our hearts to your word this morning, Lord God. These words may sound beautiful, but Lord God, if they don't land in our hearts, it is in vain. So I ask, Lord God, that you would prepare our hearts and that, Lord Jesus, you would, you would Lord God, bring uh, fruit in our lives as we accept and as we submit to your word, Father. I pray that every heart in here this morning would, Lord Jesus, be blessed by this word in a powerful, powerful way. I pray that as we walk out of this place, Lord Jesus, in about an hour and a half or an hour or two hours, I pray that we would walk different people, that, Lord God, in a way that we would glorify you more, in a way that, Lord Jesus, we would resemble you, Jesus, more. I pray for every heart in here, Lord God. Help us not be distracted this morning, Lord Jesus, but may our eyes and gaze be set on you, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord and our King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated, church. Let me just start by saying this, that people who love their church, people who love their church, they get on their knees and they pray for their church. And that's exactly where we find ourselves here in Ephesians. Paul is on his knees and and praying for his church in Rome. More specifically, he's actually in a Roman cell. And the reason for that is because he loved Jesus and wanted to, more people to come to know Jesus, and so he gets thrown in prison. So Paul finds himself somewhere in a, a hole of a prison. It's dark, it's cold, I'm sure it's dirty. Uh, it's cramped, his body is broken, I'm sure. He's a man who has been beaten, shipwrecked, homeless, left for dead. To summarize it, Paul suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. Right? We can easily say that. So we can imagine how hard it would be for him to get down on his knees, right? Hmm. It's not an easy thing to do, right, for him, but it's certainly a humble thing for him to do. 
and he's praying for his church. He's the one in Ephesus, and he's praying for his people, and he's praying for the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the midst of this suffering, he, he kneels down. I'd like us to kind of maybe just picture that. And as we get into this section of, uh, you know, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, we find that this passage is actually a prayer. It is actually a prayer. And uh, an interesting stat, uh, half of the book of Ephesians is about prayer. How, how amazing is that? It's prayers and prayer requests and, and, and prayer reports. They are woven through this entire book. And the big idea, I believe, as you probably would take like a, if you would take like a 30,000 foot bird's eye view, that this letter tries to convey to us, right? There's no such thing as a faithful Christian church without a praying Christian people. There isn't. I'll say that again. There is no such thing as a faithful Christian church. No matter what your values are, no matter what you say, no matter how, how, how great you, 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 you teach the word, without a praying Christian people, you, you will have no church. And to say it in a different way, nothing of value happens without God's people devoting themselves to prayer or devoting themselves to Jesus through prayer. That's probably a better way of saying it. So this begs the question right away, right? Are we that kind of church? Are we a praying church, Summit? Are we a praying church? And even more specifically, is your family a praying family? Let's get down even deeper. Are you a praying man and woman? Are you a praying Christian? If the answer is no, right? If the answer is no, then I don't think we should expect much of value to happen in our lives. Simply put. But if we are a praying church and a praying people, we can then expect God to do some amazing things. I think it's that important. You know, there's a, a close relationship between our intimacy with the Lord and prayer, my prayer life, and my ability to honor God in my life. There's a close relationship, and I've, I'm sure you've noticed it in your life. When you're not praying, you're like, oof, things happen, and they're not pretty. There's a close relationship between my intimacy, your intimacy with the Lord, and your ability to love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's a close relationship there. There's a close relationship between, you know, uh, me praying and, 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 and communing with God in prayer and my ability to walk through life in wisdom, to, to not fall into sin, to love even my enemy. There's a close relationship. That really speaks a lot about prayer. Spurgeon said this about prayer. Could you expect a plant to grow without air and water? No. As to expect your heart to grow without prayer and faith? Nope. As we walk through this beautiful passage, and I think we're going to be so encouraged this morning, we're going to be, I think, um, you know, maybe convicted, which is good. But we're going to be so encouraged this morning. This, this is a beautiful passage. But as we walk through this beautiful passage this morning, I want us to see how Paul prays for his church. And I'm sure that we can all learn from him to be a praying people, to be a praying church. So, so he says that prayer is, first of all, and I'm just kind of observing, and please observe with me. I think he's saying that, first of all, from the first verse, that prayer is personal. Let's just kind of start very simple. Prayer is personal. Verse 14, let's look at it. For this reason, I bow my knees. Not my cousin, not my mom, but for this reason, I bow my knees. What Paul is saying is, I'm praying. 
I'm doing it, right? It's a personal decision that I'm making. It's a personal thing. And it's something that we need to decide that we will, in fact, do as well. Pray. Now, there are many postures in prayer, right? And, and no one posture is right or wrong. Let me just say that. And just to kind of give us a few examples from what we see in the Bible, we can see people praying in various positions. It's really quickly. And if you want the, the, uh, the references, please come and see me after. We're just going to kind of run through them really quickly. We see people standing as they're praying. We see this in Genesis 24. Lifting the hands, 1 Timothy. We see people sitting. We see this in Judges 20. We see people kneeling like Paul in our passage in Mark, Mark 1, 40. Looking upward, John 17, or bowing down, Exodus 34, or placing their head between their knees, 1 Kings. So there's various postures of prayer. Now, rather than focusing on the external posture, the Bible emphasizes the posture of what? Of the heart, exactly. Somebody once said, you are before the Lord, so let your words be few, but let your heart be fervent. It points to the posture of the heart. So, so whether we're sitting, it doesn't really matter. Whether we're, you know, laying down or, 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 or kneeling, the important thing is that your heart and my heart is bowed in submission to the Lordship of Christ. That's the point here, right? Amen? So true prayer is characterized uh, by an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility before God and not the physical posture that we come to God in prayer. But let me, let me just say this. Kneeling in prayer, kneeling in prayer is a very, very special posture. If it really reflects the heart, if it doesn't, don't do it. <laughs> if it really reflects the heart, because it's an act of surrender, and that's good for our souls. That's really good for us. I mean, let me just ask this. What happens in war, since there's one going on? <laughs> if you surrender, you get down on your knees, right? If, if, if you're, if, let's just say you're a criminal, you're, you're caught in the act, red-handed, right? You get down on your knees. It's an act of surrender. It's an act of humility, and it shows the disposition of your heart. Let me just say this. I think that it's good sometimes for us to get down on our knees. It is so healthy. Practice it at home. Let's practice it here. Let's do it here at church too. It's good for us to get down on our knees too in a humble position of submission and surrender and just pray. And that's exactly what Paul is modeling to us. If Paul can do it in, in the horrible conditions that he, find, he finds himself in, we can certainly do it in our luxury and comfort, can't we? I think it's good. I think we should do this. Since we're making the first point that prayer is personal. Let me just say a few more things about prayer, and then we'll kind of move on in our passage with verses 15. Uh, things that I believe are important to know, and, and kind of, we'll just throw them out at you. I'll just throw them out at you. I think a large part of prayer is to change us, is to change us. I, I don't think it's always primarily to get God to do something for us, right? Sometimes prayer is us talking to God so that our will aligns with His will, so that we are the ones that actually change. That happens so much. Just kind of look back at your life. This is why God sometimes tells us in the Bible to uh, pray for our enemies. Pray for our enemies so that our hearts wouldn't get embittered and poisoned towards them, right? We are even called to love our enemies. Quite a you know, tall order. And through prayer, God can transform our hearts to actually start loving our enemies. 
And this kind of prayer is not necessarily just to change our enemies, right? But, but it's to change the attitude of our hearts towards our enemies. So prayer oftentimes is to change us. So let's think of prayer in that sense too. And how many of you, you know, there was something that you really wanted and you, you came before God and you started praying. And as you start praying for that thing, you're like, man, God's actually changing my heart. I don't really want, I don't even want this thing anymore, Right? And instead, you know, instead of like, you know, you, you, you started just praying for something else. Like, Lord, thank you for opening my, 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 my eyes. When I first met Emma, and I think just a few weeks in, I knew I was going to marry her. <laughs> I didn't want to scare her and just kind of tell her, hey, babe, we're going to get married. And uh, I waited a little bit. But we knew that the biggest decision that we, we have to make at that point is, babe, you're, you're going to have to move to Canada or, or I'm going to have to move to Michigan. One of the two. So let's just start praying and fasting. And we'll see what the Lord, you know, will guide us. And the back of my mind is like, I'm in no way I'm moving to Michigan. No way. I was, I was thinking, babe, you're going to see God's going to make you. God's going to change your heart. You're going to move here. Oh, yeah, just wait. In a matter of a few months, my heart was changed. I felt this freedom to, to move to Michigan. I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. I, I would have never thought this was possible, but here I am. So God does that. God changes our hearts in prayer. Another thing that to keep in mind about prayer is that sometimes prayer, and this just kind of call the obvious, you know, uh, 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 state the obvious, sometimes prayer does cause God to act. Sometimes as Christians, we kind of miss that. Seriously, it's so funny. God always hears and listens our prayers. Did you know that? He does. If we are in Christ, right, and in love, he will respond and he will act. And so sometimes, yes, prayer is to have God intervene, is to have God respond, is to have God act. Spurgeon said it like this, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an, an, an inexhaustible storehouse. Sometimes we forget about that because maybe there's an extreme of Christianity where they, you know... Um, they ask God for everything, and that's, that's all they do, you know? It's like a prosperity, and God just blessed me with this and this and this and this, and your whole life is just asking God for stuff. No, that's not what we're saying. But God does listen. God does bless. God does answer exactly, and sometimes he'll answer exactly what we're praying for, and he gives us exactly what we're praying for. Additionally, and this is a really good one, I think, at least for my heart. Maybe if the shoe fits, wear it, please. <laughs> Prayer keeps us from grumbling and murmuring and like, you know, it keeps us from that. <laughs> and grumbling is when we're unhappy and we're just sort of leaking, you know, and talking to everyone about like, oh, I had a horrible, and sometimes it's very subtle. You know, we do it in a very religious way. It's like, no, no, I'm not. But like, today sucked, but, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm good, right? We do that so much. This is something that I believe, and it, I think it's safe for me to say that we're all guilty of to some extent. Is it okay if I say that, you know? Paul here has a lot he could grumble about, right? His circumstances are extreme, and the truth is that he's not grumbling. He's not complaining. Instead, he's praying. How about we do that too? How about Ovi, when, you know, when you have a tendency to grumble and complain, how about you just pray? And so the key is this, church, as we hit difficult circumstances in life, and I'm not sure how many of us have experienced extreme and difficult circumstances like Paul did, right? I don't want to you know, minimize your pain, but his situation is pretty, pretty horrible. But the key is this. We can either be praying or complaining or grumbling, right? 
Now, grumbling is when we talk, you know, when we, when we leak and we complain and our attitude is sour and our disposition is very bitter. And prayer is where we talk about the exact same things, but we talk to God about them. Huge difference. In working them out in our relationship with him at the foot of the cross, just bring your luggage and dump it at the foot of the cross, not with your neighbor, right? Now, another thing that prayer does is it also keeps us from gossiping. Yay, <laughs> right? And this is kind of a Christian sort of a sin, right? Uh, and gossip is when we talk about someone rather than talking to them. Okay, and you may be frustrated because they did something to you, right? And, and, and you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do now, right? And how about you bring it to God in prayer? And you sort of just work out your emotions and your hurts in the presence of God at the foot of the cross. Let God deal with it. He's going to fight your fight. The only thing you got to do is you have to worry about is you have to surrender your offenses and your hurts and your pride to Jesus. That's hard. You know, there's a lot of this going on in the book of Psalms. If you kind of go through the book of Psalms, there's a lot of this going on. I mean, Psalms are in large part about prayer. And prayer is kind of like a, a lightning rod. You, you may know this. Um, and, and when a storm comes, a lightning rod grounds out the storm. Otherwise, things just blow up, <laughs> right? So let's just say there's a storm in your life and you're really frustrated. You know, prayer grounds it out. You go before the Lord in prayer and you say, Lord, I'm frustrated and I'm opening my heart to you and I'm crying out to you and this is what they did to me and I'm just really frustrated, really hard for me right now. Take it out with God. Sing it out before God. Think it out with God and let the Lord be the lightning rod. Don't blow up on your wife. Don't blow up on your friend, right? Let the Lord ground it out in prayer. There's a lot here that Paul could be very angry and frustrated about. He can't be with his church. He's serving Jesus. He hasn't broken the law, and he's being punished again, and he could die in prison for all he knows. He's single. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have kids, right? No one to kind of comfort him. He's lonely, broken, older men who is in prison, again, facing potential death. But in prayer, I think he's opening his heart to God, and God is protecting his heart from the poison of grumbling and gossiping. So first of all, prayer is personal. He says, I, I bow my knees. I do it. He's saying, I'm praying. I'm praying a lot, and I'm, and I'm dropping the weight of all the luggages, the luggage of grumbling and gossiping at the foot of the cross, but I'm praying for you, church. Let's move on to the next point. I think that Paul makes in the next, I mean, not the next couple of verses. We're still in verse 14, but I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. So prayer is not only personal, but prayer is relational. And just, just hear Paul out. For this reason, I bow my knees before, before the Father, relational, from whom every family, relational, in heaven and on earth is named. So two things here, family and Father. We really need to get this, church. We are a family. You know that? But do you believe that? And do you act like you believe that? Do I act like I believe that? The church is the family of God, and our church is just an expression of the universal family of God. This summit church right here. We're a family. What happens sometimes, particularly in, in the Western world, in our world, church is viewed as, as a supplier of 
religious supplier of goods and services, right? That's how we do church in the West. And, and, and when people treat the church like that, it's like, it's like a business, right? And they become, uh, people become customers and consumers and critics and complainers. But we're not a business. We're a family. We're, we're not. Now, the reality is that family has revenue. Family has expenses and family has a business side to it. And we want to be good stewards of that, right? But how many of you actually pray for Kroger on a daily basis for a grocery store? And maybe we should. <laughs> we don't really do that. We don't because it's a business. It's not a family, right? Church isn't a bit. It's a family. And the point here is we should be praying for our family. You know, we tend to pray for the people that we love most because they're family to us. Church is family. Are you praying for this family? The reality is that if you pray for the church, for your church, you probably see the church as family. Good for you. Awesome. You get it. But if you don't really pray for the church, you never find yourself praying for Summit, you probably see the church as a business. And the problem with a consumer relationship, a, a transactional relationship, is that you're always trying to get the most by giving the least. And that's what we see in church in America. That's, that's, and it, it just really, it saddens me. That's a business, but not a family. We are a family. Family is you give generously from your money, from your time, from your talents, your energy, right? So that the whole family would be blessed, right? And so it's important to understand when Paul uses the language of family, it's really important that we all see our church that way. Um, I was debating on saying this or not. <laughs> but since there's only a few of us, and I'm really going to challenge the ones that are going to listen to this on the podcast. Hey, you're not here. There's about 60 or 70 of us that call Summit Church their home church. If you're not here, what's the date today, 27th? On the 27th of February, you're not here. And I get it. We get sick, we can't come to church, I get it. We work, we can't. There's legitimate reasons. But I believe that there, it takes very little for us not to come to church. And I wonder why. You ever thought about that? It's probably because we treat church like a business. Would you ever treat your family like this? Like just see them once a month? I'm talking to the ones that get it, I know. Would I treat my family and just see them and hang out with them once a month? And the, the crazy part is that some of us would say, yes, I would. And that's because we live in a crazy culture, a Western culture that knows nothing of family values. Things are done a little bit different in the East. They are. Things were done totally different then in Ephesus. When Paul spoke of family, they knew exactly what he meant. We depend on each other. We live with each other. We do lives with each other. And when he says, hey, church is your family, like, wow. But when he says that to us, we're like, okay, great. I'll see you next month. Because that's exactly how we treat our parents and our brothers and sisters. I would love for us to get back into that and have those values. 
where we see that every time that you show up on a Sunday is, man, I want to spend time with my family. Because I think deep inside you would never do that to your kids. You would never work late every night and never be with your kids, you know, to have Netflix kind of raise your kids and YouTube raise your kids. No, you wouldn't do that. Why would you do that to your body of the saints, your family here? Hmm. If the shoe fits, wear it. And that's done in love. In love. So he says that this family is in heaven and on earth. Right? That's what he says. And I think that this is pretty simple. And I think that what this means is that some of our brothers and sisters are not with us anymore. They're in heaven already. Yay, that's cool, right? They're already in the presence of the Lord. So part of the family is up with the Lord, and part of the family is down here. We're still down here, aren't we? And one day, there's going to be a great family reunion in the kingdom of God, you know, where all of God's people are going to be forever together. Yes. So Apostle Paul talks about the family, right? And there's a lot there. We, we could have a series just on that, and we may. <laughs> we may just do that this year. And he talks about the Father. He talks about the Father. Church, this is so absolutely important right now. I think that one of the most important things that we can say about prayer, that we can encourage one another about prayer, is that God is our Father. We should probably just say that over and over and give us like half an hour to just think about it and then just pray. If we understand that God is our Father, prayer makes a lot of sense and, and prayer becomes very easy. If you don't believe that, if we don't understand that God is our Father, prayer becomes complicated and different and religious in a way that it quite frankly shouldn't. I can still remember because it wasn't that long ago, a couple of years ago, over a couple of years ago, holding our, my firstborn, Taya, in my hands. And just thinking, wow, I'm a father. I'm a dad. I always wanted to be a father. Now I get to just, you know, be a, just have this amazing gift over my life that I'm a father. Like, wow, I get to be the father of this little precious girl. Like, that is amazing. That taught me and is still teaching me so much about my relationship with God. I'm not saying that you will never know a relationship with God unless you have kids. That's not what I'm saying. Let's, please don't, don't, don't go there. But there's something interesting in this. Like, oh, God, you love me like this, like a father? Like, like I, I think I have an idea what it feels like now, you know, a better idea. God is committed to me like, like fathers are, are committed to their kids. Wow, if that's true, that's pretty mind-blowing, pretty amazing, because I know how much I love Taya and I love my kids. I know that. But I know that at the same time, compared to the love of the Father for us, I'm evil. That's what the Bible says. Like, what? So how much do you love us, Father? God is our Father. He's our Dad. And so when we pray, we are talking to our Dad. So here's the big idea that I'd like us to really get. Let's not focus too much on prayer, but let's focus on the Father. Let's get to know our Father. And let's focus on the Father more. What do I mean by, you know, let's not focus too much on prayer? What I mean is let's not worry about the words that we're going to use too much. Making sure that we sound articulate and that we, you know, the grammar is all in place and making sure that there's a clear structure and outline, right, in our prayers. You know, Taya, our two-year-old, she's just learning to put words together now. A lot of times you just don't know what she's saying. Like, okay, baby, I don't know what you're saying. Uh, but she doesn't, and she's probably a good example for this. 
she doesn't spend too much time putting together words, putting together an outline, right, and making sure that when she approaches me and asks me for something, she's not like, you know, like this list and kind of going, no, no, she doesn't do that. She'll say, tata choco, meaning, daddy, I want chocolate. Two words, that's it. So again, let's not focus. This is just to prove a point. There's, there's something about maybe even being articulate in prayer, but that's got its place. That's not what I'm talking about. Let's not focus too much on prayer, though, on what we're going to say and how we're going to say, but let's focus on our amazing Father. As you read the Old Testament, I found about a dozen times only that, that God is referred to as a Father, and it's always nationally, never individually. When Jesus comes along, he changes everything. Some 60 times we see it in the Gospels, we hear him refer to God as Father. So it's very personal. Listen, church, our identity now is that we are his sons and his daughters, and he's our father. That is amazing. And if, and if you want to understand prayer, don't look at the most religious and the most devout people and the way they pray. Look at the kids who really love their dad, and their dad really loves them, and see how they interact and communicate. Well, I, I believe that right there is a better example in training for prayer than anything that I, else that I can think of. Seriously. When Jesus was asked, how should we pray? He said, pray like this. Our father, our dad. And here in our text, Paul is echoing the Lord Jesus, reminding us that God is our father. Just a side note really quickly. For all of us men, if, if God should give us the grace, the gift of being a father, know that we carry a very sacred name of a father. That's huge. And if we love and honor and cherish and nurture and protect and enjoy our kids, they're, they're getting a little bit of a reflection of the Father's affection and love. And if we are poor fathers, abusive fathers, negligent fathers, angry fathers, right? As Christian fathers, we are really presenting the wrong gospel here. And not only, I think we're actually blaspheming a sacred title called Father. So men, I, I'd say let's covenant together. That by the grace of God, that will be good fathers who love our kids and that will show them something of the Father's love and affection. But for those of us who don't have a dad, who never did, who have a horrible dad, the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. And that matters. That's the world right there. And here's, here's our identity now. We've got an amazing father. One of the most defining features of someone's life is who their father is, right? I mean, I mean, so much of who we are is actually determined by who your father is. And the reality is that we've all, we all have an amazing father. Better than that, actually. We've all got a perfect dad who loves us with a covenantal love, with a covenantal affection. Here's, he's our heavenly father, and that he adopts us into his family, and we're his sons and daughters now. How amazing is that? And the truth is that our father's heart is always open. His ears are always open. His arms are always open. And once we know that, you know what we'll do? We'll run to him in prayer. If we know that. So the key is, um, key to prayer is this. Don't necessarily focus on prayer, but focus on the Father. And as we get to know the Father, prayer just sort of happens pretty easily, I think. Okay, so prayer is personal. Prayer is relational. Let's move on 
In addition, Apostle Paul goes on to say that prayer is not only personal and relational, but I think, and, and I think it's pretty obvious what he does next, but prayer is asking. Prayer is asking. Let's state the obvious. And we see that because he's going to make a request. So verses 16 and 17. And he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's the big idea. God is self-sufficient. He's self-existent and independent. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He doesn't. We, on the other hand, are super dependent. <laughs> we need God for everything. I needed God for that right there. <laughs> I'm super dependent. Therefore, God doesn't need us. He wants us and he loves us. And that's so much better, isn't it? It's like a family that adopts a child. They don't need the child. They want the child. They love the child. And they want to provide for the child. God's a father like that. And so we bring our requests to God because we're in so need of him at every moment. Here, Paul is praying for his people that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit working in them and through them. To be more specific, right? And he, and he talks and he says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay. How many of you, when you were a kid, somebody said, hey, you need to accept Jesus in your heart? A thousand times, maybe? Right? We, we, we heard that before. Now, how many of you in reading this, you say, oh, that's a little confusing, isn't it? I thought they were Christians. I thought these Ephesians were Christians. And now Paul is asking them that Jesus would dwell in their hearts through faith. Like, uh, what? But how many of you have checked into a hotel and thought, I got to go to Home Depot because I want to paint this wall and I got to fix the sink and I got to go to Home Depot and buy a bunch of tools to fix this hotel room. No, we don't do that. Why don't we do that? Because we're probably going to be there for a day. It's not our home. It's not, right? We're not going to live there. That's, that's just a hotel room. It's not your home. But what happens when you buy a home? Oh, things, you, you need to go to Home Depot then, <laughs> right? And, and we're, you're going to have to paint a room at some point. And then, and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, that makes the hallway look ugly. So I got to paint the hallway too. And now the, the cabinets need fixing and all that. And, and it, let me tell you, once you start, you'll never stop until you see Jesus, right? There's always stuff around the house. So you're going to be working on that home all the time because you're going to dwell in it, because that's your home, because, because it's going to be home for you. And what Apostle Paul is saying, is praying, is that the Ephesian church would understand that Jesus does not want to live in them like a hotel, but a home. Huge difference. He doesn't just want to check in for a couple hours and then see you later. No, 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 no. He doesn't want you to live an independent life. He doesn't just want to be with us when we're here two hours a week and then just see you later, Jesus. No, no. Right? He doesn't just want us to shoot up a prayer and like, Lord, I messed up my life again. I messed up. Please come and hang out with me for a couple hours. You know, deal with my sin and then just leave because, you know, I want to live my life. No, he doesn't do that. No. What he's saying is that Christ dwells in us. That's big. Jesus dwells in us through the person and the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit. And God wants our life to be his home. How mind-blowing is that? Jesus wants to move into your life and he's going to start working on all of it. 
You ever feel like that sometimes? Now, he may pick an area of your life to work on first, and then when he's done with that, he's going to move to another area, right? Another proverbial room, and he's going to be, there's going to be another project. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, when he dwells, when he stays, when he resides at the center of our being, he is doing a renovation project on every aspect of your whole life. Every time you're working on your house, you're rearranging stuff or you're painting something, think of this verse. And it's, it's not just that we're working on our home, but it's that we're the home for the Holy Spirit. And he always has a project he's working on in us. You may hear people say, oh, I can't believe that this problem has come up. I never talked to my wife like this. I never called her this before. You know, I'm always, you know, I'm angry. I can't believe that I was just, you know, I got angry. And the reality is that this problem has always been in your heart. And Jesus simply didn't start working on it until now. Because I'm assuming he was working on other things, and you probably weren't ready for this, but he is there now, and he's starting work when you see that ugliness that comes out, right? But this should be very encouraging, so, you know, don't discourage, because you, you get to reflect Christ in that area of your life, too. A big if. That's if we yield and surrender and humble ourselves to him. That's a big if. So prayer is personal, prayer is relational, and prayer is asking as well. And Paul is saying, to, to be a little bit more specific, that one really good thing to always pray about, that the power of the Holy Spirit would continually be showing us areas and ways we can become more like Jesus. Amen. Let's move on and see what else he says about prayer. And I think the next thing that Apostle Paul points to is that prayer is... It's kind of hard to find a word for this, but prayer is yearning. Prayer is yearning. And I think it gets a little bit emotional here. Not in a bad way, in a good way. There's bad emotional, there's good emotional. This is good emotional. Verses 17 to 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, check this out, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Man, that's a mouthful. He's talking about the love of God for his people. And what he's saying is, yes, study the Bible. Yes, do the, do the word studies. Read all the commentaries. Read all the theologians. Go for it. But there's a place where it goes beyond knowledge. And you have to just accept experience and enjoy the love of God. I've been married to Emma for almost five years now, and when we got married, I knew that she loved me. There were signs, heavy, big signs that she loved me, and now I know that she loves me, but because I've experienced that love over and over and over and signs of it over and over and over again, God wants us to experience his love over and over and over again. And for some of us, this means we need to sing a little bit louder. I don't know. You need to pray, and, and, and we need to raise, you need to raise your voice, and you need to raise your hands. You need to get a little emotional, and that's perfectly fine. But you need to know that for us, this emotional thing that I'm talking about is a demonstration. It's an affection, a godly affection, an overflow of the love of the Father that He placed in our hearts. It's not just getting emotional for the sake of getting emotional. No, that's not what it is. I would really be bummed out when I would get home from work that our 
Taya, our two-year-old Taya, wouldn't show any affection towards me. Like, hey, Dad. And then just, you know, watching her, whatever. That would suck. <laughs> but I can tell you that she loves me because there's an, there's an enthusiasm. There's a joy. There's something on her face. She comes and she, she runs right, you know, and she runs, runs in my arms. And it's not manufactured. There's a genuine affection there. A two-year-old genuine affection, right, at her level. God wants us to know of his love in a way that surpasses knowledge. This doesn't mean that it's contrary to the truth. Hear what I'm saying for the more reformed heart. This doesn't mean that it's contrary to the truth, but that it's the truth of Scripture exploding in our hearts, the heart of a child of God, and it's called joy. Joy. It's joy. So after the sermon, I think we're going to do one more song. Won't you sing a little louder? Pray. Just allow, allow some of that affection to come out if you have it. Don't manufacture it. Pray. Talk to God. There should be a joy that wells up inside of us for our Savior and for our Lord Jesus. And why? Because He loved us first. Because He gave everything. Because He did so much for us. And because if you really encounter Christ, you, would, you wouldn't be able to just stand still. You wouldn't. Sometimes we act so weird, don't we? I know I do. Because in, in my choosing not to sing, in my choosing not to pray, or maybe show some affection, I think we can grieve and we can quench the Holy Spirit by, by, by not doing that. And I think that we're, what we're ultimately saying is this. I don't want to know the love of God. I, I don't, I don't want to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be filled with all the fullness of God because what if I get emotional? What if it gets out of control? What if I'm one of those weird people that sings and prays all the time in the car? And I respond with, please do. Please do. I don't think that's our problem here at this church. It's not. Do you know the love of God in Christ? Do you know the love of God in Christ? If you do, and it doesn't matter what kind of personality you have. Yeah, sure, I'm more of a, you know, I'll show affection. It doesn't matter what kind of a personality you have. If you know the love of God in Christ, there's a yearning to experience His love. There's a yearning to feel His love. There's a yearning to, to enjoy His love, right? There's a yearning to feel and to know that love. And the reality is that Jesus loves us. When I say that, what happens in here? What, what happens in your heart when I say that Jesus loves us? Do you doubt it because you're suffering? Do we disbelieve it because we're sinning? Do we disregard it because it's cliche and corny to say that? Only small kids sing it in their songs. Come on now. Do you dismiss it because you're busy? Let me just say this. How about just receiving it? Just let it hit you. This truth may hurt a little bit, but I'll say it. There are probably not too many people that love you genuinely. There are not too many people that love me genuinely. I know that. And there's no one who loves us as much as Jesus. And there's nothing in this world as important as knowing that Jesus loves us. I'm saying a lot here. This love of God in Christ, as Apostle Paul says, it becomes the root, he says, the root that nourishes the totality of your whole life. 
And the Holy Spirit wants you to be filled with the fullness of, of the experience of the love of God. To experience how high and how wide and how deep and long His love is for you. It almost seems like there's, there isn't an end to it. That's how He speaks. It keeps on giving. It keeps on opening up if you give yourself to it. I believe that just as Jonathan Edwards spoke of this joy's eternal increase, I don't know if you've heard about that, that in heaven each day is going to be better than the last. Just think about that. <laughs> think about that. that. If that's the case, think about, think a billion years into eternity and the joy we'll be experiencing if every day is better than the last. And you know what your starting point is? It's not going to be, oh, heaven's okay. Okay, all right, we can grow from this. No, 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 no. He says, when we get to see Jesus for the first time in heaven, we will wonder if we ever lived before. That's how amazing. That's your starting point. And then it just goes better and better and better and better and better. How mind-blowing is that? In the same way, I believe, we discover new manifestations of his love that will blow our minds away. And this discovery will go forever into eternity. So the depth and the height and the width of, of, of God, His love, we keep on discovering more and more, and we should start down here. The Bible connects, and I got to say this, the Bible connects the cross of Jesus to the love of God. And the love of God has never been seen any more clearly on earth than Jesus on the cross sacrificing His life for us. To make us from enemies to friends of God and to adopt wayward kids like us into the family of God so we would have a father that loves us. How wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of God? And it all culminates at the cross of Jesus. So prayer is personal, prayer is relational, prayer is asking, prayer is yearning, and prayer is also expecting. Verse 20, prayer is expecting, it's anticipating. If we ask for something, we should anticipate. This is what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Really? I don't know if we heard what I just read. <laughs> Seriously. So when we pray, we should pray expecting. It's pretty crazy to think that whatever we can ask in prayer, God can do far more. Far more. Whatever you can think of, God can do far, not just more, but far more. So what this is, church, this is an invitation to ask. And then to expect, this is an invitation to ask because the person who can do far more is your Father in heaven. Well, that's convenient. Yes. So let's ask and expect. It's pretty amazing to think that there's a God out there that created the universe by the power of His Word who can do far more than we can ask or imagine. And then to know that he's our father and he loves his children and he invites them to ask seems like we should be asking. Are you asking faithfully? We shouldn't be asking and expecting that our father, we should be asking this man that our father hears and answers prayers because he does. The reality is that there, there, there could be only three different answers. And we see this in the Bible. God could say yes. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes we pray for good things. Yes. And a lot of times it could be no, because sometimes we ask for just bad things. He said, no, 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 I don't want you to hurt yourself. I'm not going to give it to you. And sometimes it's later. Only three options. Yes, no, or later. 
Do you know why sometimes we think that he doesn't really give an answer? Because you've thought that a million times, because I have too. Like, nah, he doesn't really listen. That's just kind of something that they say at church. We believe that because we think that because, first of all, we never really ask. We never really ask. <laughs> we don't. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. And second, there are many slices of the pie, but just a couple. And second, we're not faithful in our asking. We're not. Today we could be like, Lord, I need this. And then tomorrow we move on to something else. We forget about what we asked yesterday. God is like, you didn't really want it. That's not faithful asking. That's why we're not getting an answer, because we're not faithful in asking. That's just, that happened to me many times. So how's prayer going for you? How is it? How's asking God going for you? Your, your dad that loves you and can do far more than you can ask or imagine. Pray big. Pray big. It allows you to live your life with hope, and sometimes we have no hope because we have, we have been given up on prayer. That's just the reality of things. Now, if that's not enough, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Wow, this verse is really loaded. God doesn't just want to give things to us. God wants to do things in us. And this power of God unleashed through the Holy Spirit, it's not just God at work in the world. It's God at work in us. You know what? If you're in Christ, you're changed to a degree. But you're still changing. If you're in Christ, you're, you'll constantly be changing. Your, your, your thinking will change. Your desires will change. Your appetites will change. Your habits will change because the power of God is at work in you. And some of us flat out don't really believe that. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. Or even know that that's actually a reality in a Christian's life. So we're stuck in our old identities because we don't believe that. Right? And we'll say stuff like, well, I'm not a strong person. That's correct. A good assessment, astute observation. That's why the Holy Spirit is in you, to give you that power, right? There's the power right there. Do you believe it, though? We can't get very far if we don't believe this, that the Holy Spirit is in us to change us. Some of us will say, well, I only have power to do evil, you know, and bad stuff, and I can't stop myself from being angry. Correct. Great assessment, right? That's right. And then you received Christ, and you get the Holy Spirit, and things should start changing. And now you have the power to do good. You have the power to worship God. You have the power to act holy and to love others and to be generous. And the power of God is at work in us. I want us to be reminded today and to know that God's power is available to change us if we believe this promise. If we're willing and available and submissive. And the last one in verse 21, I think that Paul is saying prayer is revealing. Let me just read verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He ends his prayer perfectly with the glory of God. He starts it with the fatherhood of God and then he ends it with the glory of God. He says, first of all, that the glory of God is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ. This is where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you're looking for Christ, look, if you're looking for God, look no further than Jesus. This is where Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God. When the sun comes out, and then it reflects off the lake, right, and, and off of, of a windshield, off of a mirror, right, that's the reflection of the sun, right, the reflection of its glory. 
In the same way our lives individually and collectively are to reflect the glory of God. They are to show the glory of God, to show the world how beautiful, magnificent, loving, and gracious Jesus is. The Bible speaks of glory. In our English Bible, about 275 times, it's a massive theme in Scripture. And it means from splendor to beauty to radiance, heaviness, weightiness, worthiness, the superiority of the God of the Bible. And so when we pray, church, what is revealed is what is reflected in our life from being in Christ. And it really comes out in prayer. And I'm ending with this. St. Augustine said, an early church father, and he was right. And I'm paraphrasing. He says, once the issue of glory is settled, all the issues are settled. Once the issue of glory is settled, all the other issues are settled. What does he mean by that? That once you settle who you're giving glory to, once you know who you're living for, you'll know the answers to everything else in life. You don't, you don't know what to do in your marriage. It's not up to the husband. It's not what he wants. It's not up to the wife what she wants. It's about what God wants, right? And as you choose and pursue what God wants, in spite of your wants and desires, we reflect his glory and he gets glory. In your business, right? It, it, it's not what the owner, you as the owner, it's not, it's not what you want. It's not even what they want as the employees. It's not. It's actually what God wants. And as you choose and pursue what God wants, we reflect his glory and we give him glory. Once the glory issue is settled, all the issues are settled. And so many times we say stuff like, I don't, I don't feel like I'm getting what I want. You're not supposed to. <laughs> You're not. Our problem is that we have a massive problem, massive glory problem. It's an epidemic. That's the epidemic in our world. We have a, a, a massive glory problem. The, the whole world is addicted to self. We are addicted to self. It's about me, my hurts, my wants, my passion, my desires, my life, my reputation. No, it's not. That's why everybody's miserable, and it's not working for anyone. It's about the glory of God. I promise you this. Not even what I promise, but the Bible promises this, that when we live for the glory of God, you have joy because that's what we were made for. Simple as that. And when we're doing what we're made for, we're joyful. We are joyful. Listen, there's always an opportunity to glorify God. And even if you're suffering, it's an opportunity to, to, to glorify God. So then, church, let us genuinely and honestly ask together by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is at work in us, what would glorify him? In everything that we do, when we have a conversation with our parents, just ask yourself that. What, what would glorify you now, God? What words would glorify you? When you make a decision, Lord, what would glorify you right now? Not what I want. And let's live like that. If you ask that question, what will glorify God, you'll end up with a very different answer to most of the questions that you ask in your life, but it'll always be the right answer. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.